Well, good morning. Normally at this point in the uh, service, it's traditional for the elder to put his hand on his sermon notes and affirm that I am not Brett Copranica. But Brett's here and you know who he is. So I think it would be more appropriate for me to affirm that I am not Tom Dawson. (laughs) And if you're a visitor here and that's not funny to you, I would, a great way to meet our congregation would be to shake every hand until you meet Tom Dawson and then you'll understand why. Our text and our topic this morning is Psalm 139 with a tight focus on verses 7 through 12 and it's living in light of God's presence, living in light of God's presence. High thoughts about God lead to lofty worship and holy obedience to God. Low thoughts about God cause us to debase God, we pursue carnal living, and we eventually put off the worship of God for other distractions and fancies. And over the last six months, we have been engaged in considering the attributes of God. And we have seen God exalted and his truth applied. We started out in April of this year looking at what it was to live in light of God's knowledge. We then moved to looking at living in light of his love. Then living in light of his grace, living in light of his wisdom, living in light of his holiness, living in light of his sovereignty, and living in light of his, now today's, or rather living in light of his stability last Sunday. And this morning in Psalm 139, we're coming full circle. If you'll remember back in April of this year, Dalton started us out with living in light of God's knowledge from Psalm 139 verses one through six. And now I get to bring us through Psalm 139 verses seven through 12, as we consider living in light of God's omnipresence, his presence with us. Now, as we come to Psalm 139, we see that it is a Psalm of David. We don't know when he composed this. We don't know what season of life he was in. Some of the commentators suggest that his view of God is well seasoned by this point. There is an element of humility and stability in this psalm mixed with wonder that would perhaps suggest that he's in the later part of his life but we don't know for sure. The purpose of Psalm 139 as you see there in the inscription in your Bible is for the choir director. David wrote Psalm 139 to deliver to the choir director for the choir director to present and bring the choir together to present it and sing it with God's people in the public worship of God. And what a psalm this is. Spurgeon said that Psalm 139 is a lighthouse that that casts a clear light even to the uttermost parts of the sea. 
And it warns us against that practical atheism which ignores the presence of God and so makes shipwreck of the soul. That resonates with me. And I hope by the end of our message and our time here this morning, it will resonate with you as well. Psalm 139 is composed of meditations on two attributes and doctrines of God. His omniscience in verses 1 through 6 and his omnipresence in verses 7 through 12. And then the, le- the rest of the psalm is essentially four points of application of how we should live for God and respond to God in light of these things. So Psalm 139 essentially develops three key aspects of God's omnipresence. It develops the preface to God's omnipresence. It defines God's omnipresence and it gives us the implication. Psalm 139 develops three key aspects of God's omnipresence. Its preface, its definition, and its application. So let us first move to the preface, verses one through six. Dalton has already touched on this six months ago, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that again. But we can't understand verses seven through 12 unless we go back over verses one through six. The omniscience of God is directly connected to the omnipresence of God in scripture. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 reminds us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. How does God know everything that is evil and what is good? Because his eyes are in every place. Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 23 through 24, one of the primary texts for discussing the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere, states, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord? and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Jeremiah starts out with a meditation on God's omnipresence, which leads to a declaration of his omniscience that he knows all and then moves back to his omnipresence. They are intertwined, they are blossoming together in the beautiful garden of God's attributes. And in fact, to reject one is to reject the other. If you reject God's omniscience, you reject his omnipresence. The great indictment which God brought to the children of Israel in Ezekiel's day, in Ezekiel chapter eight, verse 12, is that they say the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. God doesn't know, God isn't here. And this takes us right back to the practical atheism that Spurgeon talks about. When we live as if God does not see and as if God is not present. But scripture does not allow us to entertain this possibility. God sees all because God is present everywhere. So let's review very quickly all that God knows as a preface to everywhere that God is. And in verse one of Psalm 139, we see that God knows us personally. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. David recognizes that God knows him perfectly. Searched here 
in Psalm chapter 139 verse 1 is the same word which is used in Judges chapter 8 and verse 12 when several men from the tribe of Dan were sent out to explore, to conduct reconnaissance, to map out some land that they were going to take for their tribe. God has explored every aspect of us personally. He has mapped us out. He knows us. And that word know there is a term of deep intimacy and personal thoroughness. David recognizes that God knows every aspect of him personally, not just generically, not just as a human, not just as a king on a throne, but as David, son of Jesse. God knows us comprehensively, verse 2 would remind us, outwardly and inwardly. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. God knows David's outward actions. When he ends the day's labors and sits down at night and when he gets up in the morning and by extension, God knows everything in between. You understand my thought from afar. God knows David's inward thoughts. There is no thought that is hidden from God. The most secure space in the universe isn't Fort Knox. It's not the restricted airspace over the White House. It's not your 256-bit password on your important app. It's the space in between your ears. It's the one place that other people cannot see. They don't know how you think. They can't read your thoughts. What you think between your ears is yours and yours alone. But David affirms that God sees his thoughts from afar. Even before David has gotten to the point of understanding what he himself is thinking, God understands. God knows. God is omniscient. If you want to see that explained and put into practice, you can look at Genesis chapter 4 verses 6 through 7. I would remind you that after God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain is just a ball of anger and emotion and hatred and jealousy and envy of his brother. And God comes to him and says, Cain, you better watch out. I know what you're thinking. You've got some pretty strong feelings going on, but I know what you're thinking and it's not going to end well. And it didn't. God knew Cain's thoughts before Cain had even decided to kill his brother. Further, God knows us intimately in verse three. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. The word there for scrutinize in the original means to sift, to measure out, to sort out, to winnow out that which would be hidden. God scrutinizes our paths. And the path there refers to our habits and David's public life. Not only that, God doesn't just understand him publicly, what he does before the world, but God understands his lying down. When he is done for the day, when he goes home to rest and relax in private, God knows it. And further, God is intimately acquainted, not distantly familiar, intimately acquainted. God states that Uh, David states that God's knowledge is one of close, personal, intimate closeness. 
All my ways, verse three, says you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Everything that I do, my daily behaviors, nothing is hidden from God. Not only that, God knows us prospectively. There in verse four, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. And what a blessing this is to me. As someone with the last name of Gardner, a family that has grown up with moss between their toes because they put their feet in their mouth so frequently and so regularly, God knows my words. And there have been situations when I have been providentially tongue-tied and can't speak, and I know God's involved in that as well. (laughs) Praise God that he knows my words before I even speak them. He knows our thoughts before we do, and he knows our words before our thoughts have had time to formulate those words. God's omniscience is perfect and parental, verse 5 would tell us. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. David is a man of war and he uses military language here in this first sentence. You have enclosed me behind and before. This enclosed here literally means to be beset, to be besieged. It relates to where an army surrounds, encircles and besieges a city to take it over, to raise it, to defeat it. David is saying that there is no escape There is no respite. There is no gap in God's omniscience. His omniscience surrounds us perfectly. There is no aspect of our lives that can evade God's omniscient presence. And then he says, and you laid your hand upon me. He moves from the warlike to the comforting, to the parental, just as a parent will lay their hand upon their child to demonstrate their absolute control, to protect their child, to express their authority. Much like my dad jokes about laying hands on myself and my brothers and ordaining us to the ministry of obedience, God lays his hand on us. He disciplines us He protects us. He comforts us. God's omniscience is not merely just a philosophical whim to be toyed about in a moment when we are bored, when we have nothing else to think about. It is practical, applied. God directs and guides and comforts us through his omniscience. And this leaves David in verse 6 to say that God's omniscience is incomprehensible. God knows all, but David does not. David cannot even understand that God knows all to the fullest extent. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. It is too wonderful, incomprehensible, overwhelmingly wondrous, a marvel beyond our ability to comprehend, a marvel beyond David's ability to comprehend it. This is the great irony that God knows all about us and we are capable of knowing so little about him. We are restricted by our nature. We are restricted by our sinful capabilities. Too high, I cannot attain to it. David cannot match God's knowledge. He cannot grasp every implication of it. And even after meditation and consideration, when he knows the most about it, yet he realizes that he knows so little. Spurgeon again says that when we stand on tiptoe, we cannot reach 
to the lowest step of the throne of the eternal and that's what David is feeling here. David accepts that God is omniscient but he can't fully grasp it and this is David's faith. We often think of faith as believing something even though I don't have the proof or the evidence of it and there, there is some truth to that but true faith holds fast to what we are incapable of fully knowing because God says it. God knows everything about David and in David, past, present, and future, and yet David still has relationship with God. How can that be? And that sets the stage for verses seven through 12, where the omnipresence of God is defined. David has just made some beautiful statements about God. David has just laid forth glorious poetry. And I wish we could be there in the temple, there in Jerusalem when David was there to hear this psalm sung by a mighty voice of a large choir. But you might ask David, fine, you say that God knows everything, show your work. How does God know everything? And that's a valid question. There is a fine line between glorious doctrine and heresy. And if we don't show our work, if we don't build ourselves on the foundation that is God, we soon find ourselves spiraling into unsupported assertions, which may sound good to us, but have no ultimate truth. How is God omniscient? And this is the proof. God is omnipresent. And in verse 7, David defines God's omnipresence for us. He lays forth a rhetorical question. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is nowhere. Nowhere. Scripture reveals that when coming face to face with the truth of God, we either worship God as Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. He falls on his face and recognizes that he is unworthy and sinful or we flee. There is no middle ground. Genesis chapter three and verse eight, when Adam and Eve had sinned and God came to walk with them in the cool of the evening, they fled. When we come face to face with God, the truth of God, we either worship him or we flee. So where can we flee? And David would remind us we can flee nowhere. When we flee, we are falling victim to our own ignorance, our own delusions. So let me define God's omnipresence based on verse seven. You can't flee him anywhere. He is everywhere. God is present with every point of space in his entire being. God is present with every point of space in his entire being. God is fully God everywhere. You cannot flee him. Or perhaps to put it another way, everything is present before God. Everything is present before God. My daughters have been pushing me to get a dog for the last couple of years and as a good father, I've been resisting. And in the absence of being able to have a dog as a pet, they have taken to adopting roly-polies, pill bugs. And they give them names and we take them on walks on the way to school and drop them off and Later on the way back from school, sometimes we find a roly-poly and hey, there's Bob. (laughs) 
But I find it fascinating that they'll hold those roly-polies. Those pill bugs will crawl all over their arms, in between their fingers. You can imagine that pill bug, right? I am getting away from this person. And you haven't. They're still present there. They have crawled and crawled half their life and they're no farther off than where they began. Everything is present before God. And David goes forth to develop this definition. Here in verses eight and nine, we see the comprehensive scope of God's omnipresence. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part, of the sea. David first starts out by talking about ascending to heaven. The visible heaven as well as the heaven where the stars were and ultimately the place of God's throne. If David could have flapped his way into the sky, if he could have blasted into outer space and the universe, he could yet be assured of God's presence. And this has some very fascinating implications, right? When you're at 30,000 feet, and you hit some turbulence, this brings real comfort to your soul. God has not abandoned me. On April 12th, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space, Soviet cosmonaut. Nikita Khrushchev, who was then premier of the Soviet Union, interviewed him upon his return, and based on that conversation, he later reported in a meeting that Gagarin flew to space and saw no God there. God does not exist. We've sent men to space and God isn't there. However, as several pastors pointed out immediately thereafter, if Gagarin had stepped out of his ship, taken off his helmet, he would have met God face to face. (laughs) God is everywhere. Further, he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol is the Hebrew concept for death. Not just the grave, not just the hole in the ground but rather where you go when you die when you are separated from the land of the living and David affirms that in death we stand before God God is there when we leave this life God is in eternity further David says if I take the wings of dawn this is remarkably precise language from a man who didn't understand modern physics David is saying that if I could fly as quickly as the dawn's light flies. If I could travel at the speed of light around the earth, I could not outpace or outdistance God. God is there. And then he says, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea lay to the west of Israel, and David is assured that if he could cross that sea and live on the distant, unseen shores, among people whose language he did not speak and cultures that he was not familiar with, people who themselves did not know God, yet God is still there. Now David's not just being poetic. He's drawing us a picture here. He talks about going to heaven, up. He talks about going down to Sheol, down. He talks about the morning light, east. He talks about the sea to the west. David has just said that in every point of the compass and in eternity itself, God is present. I was 14 when 
a local pastor came to visit my dad in Brazil where I grew up. My dad invited him into our living room. My dad knew of him, sort of. He was a pastor at a local charismatic church. This man was eager to talk to my dad. He had a story. Oh, pastors tell the best stories. And I was there to hear it. And he told a story about how he had had an experience with God. And it actually became a fad in that tiny little town where we were ministering, Katanduva. And essentially, this pastor and many other Christians in that city would get in their cars and they would travel about three hours to the west. They'd come to a big national park. They would walk into the park. They would hike for about an hour, I think it was. And you'd come to a cave. And you go into the cave. It was a fairly nice little hobbit cave. And right there in the top of the cave was a stalactite. And that stalactite dripped water occasionally. And that pastor came to tell my dad about this amazing experience that he had as he sat there with his little cup underneath the stalactite. And he sat there for six hours. This is a long day for this dude. He sat there for six hours until the dripping water filled his cup. And then he drank it and he told my dad, I just felt like God was there. My dad and he talked for about an hour and then he left and never came back. The upshot is you can sit in your kitchen with a drippy sink and God is there. You don't have to go to far off distant caves and drink stalactite juice to know God. (laughs) The ironic thing was a church in our town started selling little flasks of water that they claimed were from the stalactite. And it was a great hustle until somebody who had actually drunk the stalactite water had a flask and said the water was too clean. (laughs) It wasn't the same water, and that hustle fell away. But we don't need to pursue special experiences. We don't need to buy into the sounds and the smells in order to experience God. He is present. This is the comfort of our heart. Now, this basic understanding of God's omnipresence is entry level, and it has three big implications. First, God's omnipresence shows the futility of all idolatry and false gods. Because God is present, everything else that you trust in that is material or immaterial is false. That's the whole point of 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where in order to prove, scientific experiment to prove whose God is real, and the prophets of Baal jump about the altar calling for Baal to send down fire and Elijah teases them precisely with the omnipresence of God. Baal must not hear you. He must be asleep. Again, the connection to God's omniscience. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Maybe he's traveling. Baal is not omnipresent. God is. And when the prophets of Baal were done leaping and singing and had run themselves hoarse, Elijah knelt down and prayed, had the altar covered with water, and the fire of God came down because God is present, and he hears, and he acts, and he will not have his glory in his omnipresence and his omniscience taken by another. But second, the bare doctrine of the omnipresence of God has a terrifying impact. This isn't just a seminary class where we get to learn that God is everywhere, 
This evokes real emotion. And the first thing that the omnipresence of God should evoke in you is terror. Absolute terror. When we sin against an omnipresent God, he is not simply the offended party. He is also the perfect witness to our sin. He is the perfect judge who will render righteous judgment. And he is the divine magistrate who will carry out the sentence of terminal judgment on those who commit sin and rebel against us. As such, God's omnipresence clarifies that there's no hope of mischaracterizing the offended party. There's no hope of misrepresenting the witness. There's no chance of misleading the judge. And there is absolutely no possibility of escaping judgment. Inescapable condemnation is the final verdict of the essential doctrine of God's omnipresence when it's taken together with his perfect knowledge. You are condemned. You are a sinner and God will not let you out the hook. How can he pretend to look the other way? How can he not know about your sin when he has been present and when he knows? If we are to find any hope and comfort in God's omnipresence, there must be more to it. If we are to rejoice, as David is rejoicing here in Psalm 139, we must find a deeper understanding of God's personal presence. Not just that he is present everywhere, but that he is personally present, that he has a relationship with me and with you. And that's what we come to in verse 10. As David thinks about all the different ways and places that God is omnipresent, and that God knows. As he thinks about the four points of the compass which he has just laid forth, he says, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. The reality of God's omnipresence is not a cold, bare, antiseptic, terrifying doctrine to David. God is not simply here but unengaged. He guides, directs, and provides the care of his right hand of favor. David is God's friend. He is in God's presence. God has extended the right hand of privilege and favor to him. As David meditates on God's universal omnipresence, as he looks ahead with faith, he recognizes the comfort that God is personally with his people in his omnipresence. This is the whole story of the Bible. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The precious hope of his presence fulfilled him and them together. But after the fall, there was separation. No more did God walk with his people. But God again and again has pursued presence with his people. And the great hope of that is that prophecy in Isaiah, or one day, David's promised son, also David's Lord and David's Savior, would come and bring salvation. And that man's name was Emmanuel, God with us. Through Emmanuel, through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. And now God is not just everywhere present but he is with us he extends his favor to us where once we were rebels who rejected his presence and his nature now we can rejoice and rest in him Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 2 listen but now thus says the Lord your creator O Jacob and he who formed you O Israel do not fear for I have redeemed you I have called you by my name you are mine 
when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. God's favor toward his people. He is omnipresent, but he is with us and we are his. This is the presence of God. We don't need to drink stalactite juice. We don't need to get into the bells and the smells and all the other stuff. We need to look to Christ. Christ, Christ, the essence of God's presence with us. Emmanuel, God with us, who the bridge across the void created by the fall. I want to ask you, do you have the comfort of God's omnipresent right hand of favor extended to you today? Look to Christ today, the one who took the punishment, the one who took God's just judgment for poor sinful savior, for poor sinners. Christ took that and as such we can now approach to God, be with him, be favored by him, rejoice not just in his omnipresence but his presence. And that's what we see here in verses 11 through 12, the defeat of darkness by God's omnipresence. If I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. The darkness will overwhelm me. David thinks about the darkness and he's using very vivid, very violent language here. This word darkness means to oppress, to cover, to bruise. There are literal and figurative aspects here. But tough times are coming. David sees it. And he reflects on how the world thinks of God in terms of his presence or his absence. The sun god of Egypt traveled through the underworld to rise in the morning. The priests of the sun god gave sacrifice and prayed all night so that the sun god could be sustained and rise in the morning. The Egyptians believe that at night, God was not present. He was busy moving through the underworld, but he emerged in the morning. And by the way, what a delusion to think that your prayers are needed to strengthen your God. As David understands how the world around him thinks about darkness as a cover for wickedness, as the absence of God, he takes great hope in the very drumbeat of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 6 and 8. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5. First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 20. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 31. As well as Hebrews chapters 13. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. All repeat the simple phrase. God will never leave us nor forsake us. There is no darkness with God. He is always present. There is no darkness with God because he sees all. God is omnipresent and he is present. There's great application here, isn't there? For the difficult, dark times of our own life. When it feels as if God isn't there. When our emotions want to tell us that God has abdicated the throne and he has given up 
his omnipresence. The dark times of the soul when we're jealous and envious of how God is present with somebody else and is manifesting his favor to them and we see his blessings and his work and we look at our own lives and we're like, where is God? He is not here. Psalm 139 tells us, return to the truth of God's omnipresence. Let God's nature and attributes school you and bring you back into right thinking and right feeling. God is present always and he sees all. All is light before him. So how should we live in light of God's presence? How should we live in light of God's presence? That's what verses 13 through 24 would tell us. They provide clear application of how we are to take the matter of God's omnipresence, that he is with us personally, that he knows all. And he calls us to some very specific responses. Now the first thing that we see here in verses 13 through 16 is that we should give thanks for God's wonderful creation. We should give thanks for God's wonderful creation. There in verses 13 through 14, he says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. It is not enough that God knows all and that God is present. God is not static. God personally acts in space and time according to his perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom, and one of his many acts is our creation. Our lives and our bodies are constructed by him from the inside out, and we should give him thanks for this. There are several things that David lays out here as part of God's wonderful creation that we should give thanks for. We should first of all thank God for his personal creation, and we have seen that there in verses 13 through 14. The phrase there, for you form my inward parts, literally means the kidneys. You formed my kidneys. And that was just a term that the people at David's time used and understood to speak to our guts, the essence of who we are. It could also apply to your heart, to your personalities, to your innermost self in terms of your emotions and your thoughts. God formed you. It is not enough that God knew David in his mother's womb or that God was present when David was in the womb, but his omniscience and his omnipresence acted together with his omnipotence to form David into who he would be. And that's what David says. There at the last part of verse 13, you wove me in my mother's womb. The image here is of a weaver or of an artisan who personally creates a garment or tapestry according to their creative vision. God is the master artisan who uniquely created us from the moment of conception. And he does so with his wisdom and his very presence. I think sometimes, even for us Christians, we tend to talk about how God creates and we get into the weeds of biology and we sort of come to this idea that God has offloaded his creative power to biological processes. Yes, God creates me through the biological processes, but the biological processes are happening. God really isn't that involved. This rebukes us. God has not handed over his creation to biological processes. His tools 
are those biological processes and he uses them skillfully to shape us. This is a key text for understanding the value of life from its very conception, from the very beginning. The truth that life and personhood begins at conception and in the womb is built on the foundation that in his wisdom and through his presence, God creates us personally. He personally created us to be us. You have value, not because you're small and indefensible, but because God created you from the start. God wove you. Further, David moves on to say that I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In light of God's presence, wisely, masterfully, and awe-inspiringly creating him, David's response and our response should be to marvel and praise him and live in thankfulness. God created all things for his glory and when we thank him as David does, we are living up to that which he has created us to be. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. Right theology leads to conviction, to assurance and to security. David is convinced of what God has done because he is convinced of who God is. Do you doubt what God has done? Do you doubt what God can do? Go back to scripture. Go back to his revelation. Immerse yourself in the knowledge of who he is and see if your security, if your assurance doesn't come flooding back as you consider what God will do and can do. Not only that, we give thanks not only for God's personal creation, but for his deliberate creation. There in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Moving from the guts, David now talks about the frame, the bones. David was a child, David was a baby, a child, and now an adult, and his frame has changed with him. It was created in God's sight, in God's presence, and it was created to the exact specifications of God's desire for David's height and size. Further, David and you and I were made in secret, away from the eyes of men, in the darkness of the womb that is yet fully illuminated before God. God made us like a masterpiece, ready to be unveiled in due time. He says he was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. There at the end of verse 15, skillfully wrought literally means embroidered with great skill. It carries the picture of fine embroidery or needlework. Listen, not, God not only created your innermost being, he not only created your guts and your emotions and who you are at your core, he didn't just create your frame, your bones, but he created everything that overlays that. He personally embroidered our veins and our muscles and our nerves and our skin. He sewed us together with every dimple and freckle and mole and eyelash and every aspect of our personality that he thought was wise to fit us uniquely and deliberately according to his vision for us. All this he did personally and wisely in the womb before you or anyone else had a say. Look in the mirror and thank God for who he has made you to be. And I say that with a holy caveat. 
Psalm 139 isn't just talking about random body positivity. The world's all big about body positivity. David is about creator positivity, recognizing that we have received something from God and he deserves all worship for that. I remember when I was younger, looking at my dad's side of the family and how they have beautiful hands. Oh my goodness, beautiful hands. Slender fingers, the perfect size. Great veins in the back. My dad's midlife crisis was to teach himself how to play piano. And I would stand there by the piano and just watch those lovely hands just go up and down the notes and the keys. My grandmother had the same hands. Ben Gardner wanted those hands, but you know what? Ben Gardner didn't get those hands. The fingers are not slender, the veins in the back are not appealing at all, and they're not even that large. But I take comfort knowing that God gave me the hands that he wanted me to have. He fashioned me. And there are some of you here this morning in development, working through what God means for you as your frame expands. Take heart in God's omnipresence. Maybe you want less nose or more ears or whatever the case might be. The size doesn't, the shape doesn't, the color doesn't fit the secular standard. God created you to be who you are. And if the secular standard matches you, you didn't receive it because you were amazing. God created you without your input. Give God the glory. Thank God for his personal, deliberate creation. Not only that, in verse 16, we see his sovereign creation. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained from me, when as yet there was not one of them. The unformed substance here is the Hebrew word, golem. It means an unformed Substance like a lump of clay. David is referring to himself when he was in the embryonic stage. When that little person didn't look anything like a person in the womb. God was watching over David in the womb because of his omnipresence. Not only like that, but as a potter who takes a lump of mud and has in mind what that shapeless clay will be created into God was actively transforming David from embryo and on, fashioning him into his purpose for David. And so it is for you and I, and David pours himself out in thankfulness, and so should you and I. Further, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. God created David sovereignly from an embryo, but more than that, God has written down all the days that David will live before he had even emerged from the womb. In his sovereign wisdom, God had laid out the course of David's life clear to the day of his death. We can truly say that God not only makes us, but he makes our lives because of his omnipresence, because of his presence. God did so knowing all things in his omniscience and is present with David in that life as part of his omnipresence. You'll note there it talks about the book and the days ordained for me. This gives an official, purposeful, 
legal idea to God's intentions. God isn't just making up on the fly how many days David has. Getting tired of this whiner. Maybe it's time to shuffle off this mortal coil, David. No, God doesn't act like that. God has ordained in his book. He has put down in columns. He has written it out every day that David will live. And David will not live one day less and he will not live one day more. And it's not just David. You and I have our days written in the book. In God's book, our days are written. And for some of us, those days will come sooner And for others, those days will come later. But the hope, the comfort, is that God is omnipresent. When we leave this earth, when my day comes, the last day and the page is turned and there are no more days for me to live, I don't leave God. I step into his presence fully. God doesn't react to new information. Nothing is by chance. He's not figuring out as he goes along. He's not improvising. God has ordained David's days. We can't read that book, but we can rest and rejoice in the truth of the perfect knowledge and comforting presence of God as we consider our own days. God knows all. He is present everywhere. Nothing is by chance. God is in control. And we should pour ourselves out in praise and thanks, in difficulty, in triumph, at home, at work. We can rejoice and thank him for his wonderful creation of us. Secondly, not only should we thank God for his wonderful creation, but we should exult in God's precious purposes. How does God want you to react to his omnipresence and his omniscience? He wants you to exult in his precious purposes. We see that in verses 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. David rejoices, amazed, that in all that God knows, he knows us intimately and personally and comprehensively and presently. God has revealed his purposes and his thoughts to us in in his word. And in so doing, God has laid out his purposes to love us, to provide for us, to protect us, to be with us, and to bring us home at last, along with countless others. David looks upon God's purposes and finds them precious, highly valued, to be prized. Not only that, he adds that phrase, when I awake, I am still with you. David exults in God's precious purpose of presence. When he awakes from sleep, he doesn't return to God. As if by being asleep, he had left God. Rather, he recognizes that during his sleep, God has sustained and been with him. God has been faithful to every promise that God made to David when he was awake. And when he awakes from sleep, and when he can think again of God's presence, It is just as true and as real as when he was unaware of it. God doesn't change because we do. Do you have trouble going to sleep at night? Do you fear that in going to sleep at night, you are leaving God's presence? Come meditate on Psalm 139, verse 17. 
and 18. In verses 19 through 22, a third way that we are called to apply God's omnipresence is that we are to align with God's righteous position. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Such a cheery application. This is an imprecatory prayer. And my personal conviction is that we often make imprecatory prayers harder than they need to be. We tiptoe around them and throw out so many caveats that we essentially debase the imprecatory prayers from the canon of Holy Scripture. Reading one well-situated commentator, he said that this passage is actually unchristian. When we read through Psalm 139, we need to cut out this part. It doesn't apply to us anymore. I would disagree. There are three, there are two key aspects of imprecatory prayer, both here in Psalm 139 as well as in all the other imprecatory prayers throughout Scripture. And they help us to unlock what's going on here. First of all, David is expressing obedience to God's will. Because of God's omniscience and his omnipresence and God's ownership of David in creation, David has no room to pursue his own standards of righteousness or to recognize anyone else's standards of righteousness. God has revealed the standard of his holy character through his holy law, and if David is to hold to God, he must oppose all that which opposes God. Accordingly, David wants what God wants, David loves what God loves, and David hates what God hates. David, here in Psalm 139, verses 19 through 22, is essentially pre-stating what we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom involves redemption, absolutely, but it also involves judgment. And both redemption and judgment are God's will. This is not David's personal vendetta. This is not David's pursuit of private revenge. Someone didn't cut him off in chariot traffic and he writes Psalm 139. Rather, it's a recognition that God's own revealed will is a perpetually holy, omnipresent will. And he will judge and destroy the wicked in every age. David is simply praying God's own words and will back to him. David's heart is united with God's heart. And ours should be too. But there's a second thing. Not only is David being obedient to God's will, but there are specific characteristics of those who David prays against imprecatorily. Which sinners is David praying for God to destroy? Imprecatory prayers are not and should not be prayed against just general sinners who have never heard the gospel or who have heard the gospel and remain unconvinced. David has a great passion for those In Psalm 51, verse 13, as he repents of his own sin, he pleads with God that God will use David to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David wants to see people saved. David wants to see people brought into the kingdom. David wants to see sinners united with God. What David is talking about are a different class of people. 
David, Paul, and Christ himself prayed for and pronounced God's judgment on those who knowing the truth, who have been in the truth, even given their allegiance to the truth at one time, they actively resist and subvert the truth and seek to destroy those who practice the truth. David desires the vindication of God's righteous judgment against this specific class of people. And who are they? Well, he lists it out. Those who are openly wicked, those who shed blood, violating the value of those who are fearfully and wonderfully made, those who speak against God, They are actively, publicly trying to use reason to convince others that God is not God. They are those who take God's name in vain. They hate God and they rise up against God. If it were possible, and it is not, they would drag God down from heaven and crush him beneath their feet. These are powerful men. These are influential men. These are men that David would benefit from if he just tolerated them or went along with them. They were kings and rulers in places around him with whom he could form allegiances and bring a temporary peace. They are men in his own court, perhaps. Businessmen. Those who have inherited great wealth who could increase David's kingdom if he would just fellowship with them. But David rejects that. David says, God, I'm with you regarding wickedness. I will have no association with these men. They're committed to destroying you. They're committed to destroying your people. And I openly declare my allegiance to you. And God calls us to do the same. We need to take a stand for God, the omniscient, omnipresent God. We need to pray that God will sweep away in in judgment those who have given themselves to open evil purposes, those who have heard the truth like the Pharisees and have rejected God in the face of his salvation. This is the stepping point for the gospel. This is where the gospel becomes real. That we expectantly pray and proclaim that God will judge those who oppose him. And we call those who hear the message of destruction to see the precious truth of redemption and repentance in Christ. Repentance is seeing sin as God sees it, agreeing with God about our sin, and by aligning himself with God's omnipresent holiness, David is demonstrating his own repentance. These wicked men have denied repentance. Living before an omnipresent God calls us to choose him above all others, to hold to him above all else, to acknowledge his righteous judgment above all other standards. Society is going to come to you this week and say, hey, we'd really like it if you would affirm us. We'd really like it if you wouldn't make a fuss when we do this, and we know it's against God, just don't get in our way. Psalm 139 says, nope, I'm standing with God, I'm proclaiming it, and I'm praying that your purpose will fail. The world tells us that the price of fellowship with them, or even existence among them, is at minimum neutrality and preferably agreeing with their standards. 
With David, we express that there is no neutrality. We proclaim our allegiance to God and we pray for his return and the judgment of those who seek to destroy his people and his worship. We align ourselves with God. And finally, in verses 23 through 24, we submit to God's exhaustive examination. Now, this is where it gets a little bit ironic. David started out the psalm by stating that God knew him and had searched him. And now here at the end of the psalm, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Well, which, which is it? God knows us or do we have to invite him in? The final application of God's omnipresence and his omniscience is that we submit to God's exhaustive examination. We don't invite God in. God already knows. God is already examining us through his omniscience. What we do is we submit to that. It's going to happen anyway. Submit to it. David begs that God would search David and know his heart. God already knew David intimately and exhaustively. So David is praying that out of God's omniscience and omnipresence, God would make visible and bring to light from his innermost being what God knows about David so that David can see where he has deceived himself and regarding what he needs to repent. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. That word try there has a metallurgical quality to it. The way you try metal, test the nature, test the quality of my thoughts and my motivations and my concerns. Taken together, heart and thoughts compass the full scope of David's inner life. David asked God to know, to intimately map out any disquieting thoughts, anxious doubts, concerns in him. If left to fester, doubts blossom into outright rejection of God. The best medicine for doubt is to meditate on God's nature and invite God's examination, to submit to that which God has examined. Further, see if there is any hurtful way in me. Literally translated, see if there is any way of hardship in me. Behavior and motives that are apart from the standard revealed by God. Proverbs 13 verse 15 reminds us that the way of the treacherous is hard. And further lead me in the everlasting way. Guide me, direct me. As, as he has recognized that God is doing, he now wants to submit to what God is doing. In the way of righteousness is life and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 12 28. The end result of submission to God's exhaustive examination is being tested by an omniscient, omnipresent God, repenting of sin and walking in the way of life and fellowship with God, not just in his general omnipresence, but in the comfort of his favor and his holiness. This is living in light of God's presence. I want to ask you, are you living in light of God's presence I hope that I haven't given you a checkbox list that you're going to get up tomorrow and just check, check, check. That's legalism. I'm famous for that. I have been famous for that. What we have here is God's nature on display and we delight in considering it. Will you delight yourself in going back over Psalm 139 throughout this week, thinking through the implications of the nature of God and rejoicing in him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your omniscience. We thank you for your omnipresence and how they are so clearly intertwined. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might be faithful as we think through these things to be called up to live in light of your presence. Remove from us every way of hardship. Lead us in the way everlasting, the way of fellowship and delight in you. Father, comfort our hearts. Bring us to hold fast to your presence as the greatest antidote for our loneliness, our sadness, our selfishness. Help us to live out your truth before the world and call others to repentance and rejoicing in you. All this we pray in Christ's name, amen.